you're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I'm certain this crossover has something to do with Peter Gabriel leaving the band, right? Right? and welcome back to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Kyle Rayner is forefront in the book today, as he's in a crossover event. Crossover event called Genesis. Unfortunately, I don't think it has anything to do with the band. I think it has something to do with a god wave, and the fourth world is involved, and Darkseid is involved. Which leads us to issue 91 of Green Lantern, where Desaad, for whatever reason, has decided to torture Green Lantern. Yeah, it makes no sense, but uh, we'll just go with it. It's Genesis. Why not? Sadly, it's not Peter Gabriel, but whatever. Plus, we also have another issue of Green Lantern Corps Quarterly. And this time out, in issue number four of Green Lantern Corps Quarterly, we're going to be taking a look at one of the first Green Lantern stories penned by Ron Mars. It's an interesting tale about uh, a magician that deals with a Green Lantern who's also a magician. Kind of weird. Plus, we get another story with Alan Scott, another story with Nort, and then an inventory story with a mom who lets her kids skate on thin ice. Yeah, they're not always going to be winners, folks. But there is a good Nort story, and Alan Scott is always fun. Plus, Solomon Grundy is there, and Solomon Grundy wants pants, too. So, kick back, get yourself something to drink. I'm going to go get myself something to drink before I start off with this. But while I do that, why don't you take a listen to some of these great podcast promos for some podcasts that I listen to, and... Hopefully you will be listening to as well. And when we get back from a little break of these promos, we'll kick into issue 91 featuring Desaad and plenty of torture. Torture! Torture! torture. the Enterprise, a proper shakedown. I would say it's time for that, sir. I... If 
before this drama unfolds, we give welcome to the ones named Kirk and Spock. You! What planet is this? Which one of you is the captain? Do we violate the treaty, Captain? Sir, someone is stealing the Enterprise. What are you scratching at? Humans make illogical decisions. Distract sequence completed and engaged. No! Yes, I found the spot. I'm fucking the spot. You understand? Starfleet, do you read? This is the Enterprise. We are under attack. Fire in the sky. Star Trek Monthly Monday, covering every episode of the classic original TV series in randomly selected order, on the second Monday of every month, at twotruefreaks.com. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. <coughs> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil. You get it. You get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? And we are back. But before we get into the actual issue this time, let's go ahead and take a look at some of the emails that were written into the Just One of the Guys email address. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and this time out, our email comes from my good friend, Mr. Luke Jackanetti, host of Earth Destruction Directive, host of The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, and also guest host on Professor Allen's show, uh, The Short Box Showcase. So, uh, Luke's been around a little bit. This time out, he's got an email entitled Wang Chung. The email goes, Sean, all I have to say, dude, is that you're killing me with Wang Chung's to live and die in L.A. in the last episode. Hopefully not a bad thing. Oh, it is a good thing. Oh, my dang. the One of my favorite albums of all time. Oh, cool. That was an album with which my father would play in the car rides back all the time back when I was a kid. Talk about a flashback. My mind is blowing. Well, great, Luke. I appreciate you writing in. I'm glad you're liking the uh, the music because uh, last time when I put some Avril Lavigne in there, I got a little blowback from that. Uh, a couple of people called me out, and uh, rightfully so. Thinking about it now, uh, people had suggested the Matthew Sweet song of Girlfriend, and yeah, that probably would have been a less annoying song, but uh, 
sometimes the first one that comes to mind is the one you have to go with. So I apologize. But that, that little bit is all that I've got for email. Luke, thanks again for writing in the show. Again, the number of shows that you write into is just amazing. And I know you've said that it's easier to write in shows than to actually produce them yourselves. But I enjoy listening to Earth Destruction as a directive as well. So the more you can produce of that, because you are just generally so knowledgeable about that, uh, I, I can't wait. But... That does it for email. I'm going to close the email back up and go ahead and move on to coverage of Green Lantern number 91. Green Lantern number 91 had a cover date of October 1997 and a release date of August 6, 1997. The cover price was $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada. The title this time out was Torture. The writer was Ron Mars. Pencilers this time were George Genty and Daryl Banks. Inker was Terry Austin. Colorist Jason Wright. Letterer Chris Eliopoulos, Associate Editor Dana Curtin, and Editor Kevin Dooley. Don't you just hate it when you wake up cuffed to a granite altar with Darkseid's personal inquisitor Desaad standing over you? Yeah, me too. It's pretty apparent that Green Lantern Cal Rayner does, as he tries in vain to will his ring to free him from this torture. Torture! Chamber. Removing Kyle's mask, Desaad tells the captive lantern that there are dark tidings ahead, and he plans to learn the nature of ultimate power, the kind of power that Kyle as the last green lantern should know about. Desaad begins the painful procedures, prompting Kyle to wonder if his tormentor is going to ask him any questions. Desaad tersely says, no, as he gets back to causing Kyle pain. Flashback to Kyle at his apartment, looking at the locket he gave to the love of his life, Donna Troy. Since the death of her son, Don has shunned Kyle, and he's bemoaning his situation to green-skinned former swimsuit model Jade. Jenny says that Kyle needs to let Donna deal with her grief, but Kyle is all, I've got a power ring, I should be able to fix it all. Jenny consoles Kyle, but not in that way, and Kyle realizes that he just needed to vent, and he was glad that Jenny was there. But he can't afford to be a Betty Bringdown, as he decides to take his logo design over to architect and former Green Lantern, John Stewart. We cut back to Desaad, who is continuing his brutal torture, torture on Kyle. The lantern asks how he's able to keep from using his ring, and Desaad pulls the whole, we're gods, dummy, we can do whatever the plot dictates. Then he gets back to jabbing sharp objects into our hero. Cut to Kyle delivering the logo to John and his blue-skinned elven girlfriend, Marianne. Kyle does some more moping about Donna, and John changes the subject to what went on in California. Kyle relates the tale of his resolution with his estranged mother and intervention with his alcohol friend. And John mentions that he hasn't had any bouts of randomly blasting out any Green Lantern energy. The two eventually part ways, saying that they'll meet up later at the Warriors bar to shoot the shit with Guy and Alan. Exiting John's apartment, Kyle is witness to a boom tube opening in front of him and parademons hopping out to capture him. Kyle rings up to take on the Clyde wannabes, but before he can knock the minions of Apocalypse out, Kyle gets a dampening field placed on his ring, allowing the parademons to capture him and drag him through the boom tube. This brings us up to present time, where Desaad is finishing up his work on Green Lantern. He gives Kyle an explanation of why the ring works only for him, and why it still works since Oa blew up. Sensing that the end is near, Kyle says Desaad not to expect him to beg, but rather than going for the cliched, no Mr. Lampton, I expect you to die, line. Decide to let Kyle go. Just like that. 
battered and bruised, Kyle prepares to give a little bit back of what he got to Desaad, but the creepy cleric mentions that if he does, he'll never get back to Earth to assist staving off the oncoming cataclysm. Or cataclysm. Kyle relents and boom tubes back to Earth as Desaad plugs the upcoming Genesis crossover, which, again, I think has something to do with Peter Gabriel getting back with the band. The end. Now, as you can hear from my notes, I did not pick up the Genesis crossover at the time, and from what I've heard, I'm probably better off for it. To give you a basic idea, the story of it was there was this thing called the God Wave, and I'm using air quotes up to the microphone, that passed the universe and created the gods and the planets. Then it bounced off the edge of the universe, okay, and came back and created the superheroes on its second pass. Now it's coming back again and messing things up and dark side and it's involved and blah 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 blah. I could really care less. This is just kind of a pointless tie-in which really only serves to explain that Cal's power comes from something bigger than the Owen power source and that only he could wield the ring. Unless he willed it to someone else or decided to make other rings or whatever the plot contrivance wanted to have happen. Yeah, it's... uh. It's kind of a one-off issue that ties into a company-wide crossover that I don't think too many people were all that enthused with. Even though John Byrne was behind it, I don't think it's one of the best things that John Byrne probably did. This, of course, is not really my opinion, but the opinion that I've heard from other people. I can't really say, because I didn't read it. But I did read this, and I'd like to get to some of my notes on it. We'll start off with the cover, which has Desaad torturing Kyle, and decide, uh, well, he looks kind of wonky. He's got the Joker sort of rictus grin here, and again, it sort of accentuates the idea that Terry Austin really likes teeth. Man, that's a big cheese-eating grin there, and I think it's an effective cover, but I think it would have worked far better if it were the sort of, oh, the Goldfinger kind of cover where you know Kyle is on the table and the laser is going up to split him in half but maybe that's just because well Goldfinger is awesome page one we get some pretty blatant Christ imagery here with a uh, Kyle being held captive on a weird sort of platform with his arms stretched out shackled and his legs shackled I'm not really a fan of it uh, especially when it doesn't really have any meaningful impact on the book if you're going to make references to, you know, the the Bible story or whatever, then that's fine. But yeah, well, I guess it doesn't really matter because it's it's torture. So essentially, that's what you know the Christ imagery is about as well. So yeah, I guess I just no prize myself. Page two, panel one. I know I was listening to a podcast and I can't remember who it is. I want to say maybe Fire and Water podcast, but I might be wrong. But someone was complaining about when someone speaks that they speak in their own font. And that was kind of annoying. And we get here that Desaad, when he says who he is, he gets his own uh, sort of comic book font for his name that he speaks in. And I don't know if that's irritating or cool, but yeah, I guess Desaad got his own font. So, uh, you know, if he had a who's who entry, maybe this, this would be his uh, font for that entry. Moving ahead to page five, we get an image of 
uh, Donna, well, we don't get Donna in here, but we get that Donna gave back the necklace Kyle gave to her in issue 78. So technically their official relationship where Kyle professed his love to her has lasted just over a year. And maybe because I read these back to back, it feels like the breakup came so quickly, but I guess it did have a good year long relationship, but it still to me feels like something that was just thrown in the book really out of place and really quickly. And plus on this page, Kyle is just so mopey. I mean, he's like Dr. Phil Oprah level of mopey here. And I'm glad Jade is at the apartment to kind of help him through this rough time in his life. Page seven. I want to talk a little about the art. Uh, Banks uh, and Genty's art styles really don't seem too divergent. I think Genty has a more, like uh, I've said before, more cartoony style. His lines are not as angular, so he gets a bit more curved. I think their art styles work well together that you don't see a radical change up between the two art styles. Uh, a lot of times in books where you'd have artists that tried to be similar in their art style, you could definitely tell that there was a difference between them and it it kind of jarred you. Here in this book, you, there's no real major differences, so it flows a lot better, the artwork here. On page 8, panel 2, you get a pretty gruesome shot of Kyle getting all torn up from the torture. In fact, there's this one shot where it looks like Desaad has drilled a hole into Kyle's abdomen and where the hole is, it looks like it might have gone right into his liver. It's ugh, it's all kinds of creepy. Then on page 9, panel 3, I find it well, kind of amusing that it's actual, literal deus ex machina that is keeping Kyle from using his ring. It's actually a machine that the new gods are using. So there you go, deus ex machina used properly in a book. Page 10, we get the flashback with Kyle going over to John and Marin's house and giving him the logo that he designed for them. And I hearken back to what Michael Bradley had to say in our coverage of the Green Lantern Silver Surfer issue. If this is an example of Kyle's design work, you can imagine why he's not reeking in the money for being a graphic designer. It's a pretty lame design. Page 11, we get the From Crisis to Crisis traditional all subplots accounted for with that. Uh, John saying he hasn't had any more backlashes with the energy. Kyle talking about Donna and what happened with Fatality and what happened with his mom. So there you go. Like I said, from crisis to crisis, all subplots accounted for. Page 13, panel 1, as the boom tube opens up, I'm going to make the assumption that the little parademon in the background is actually Clyde, leading the forces of Darkseid to take down Green Lantern. Working... I, probably just working away from Darkseid for a while, because... Darkseid gets annoying. At least that's what I'm going to believe throughout this book. Page 15, panel 4. Here's another example of uh, Kyle's ingenuity or his creativity in creating ring constructs. He uses a ring construct mace, but it's got a sort of robotic face. In fact, it looks a lot like, a, like an Autobot face or maybe the face of Unicron. I'm trying to remember how... It's been a while since I've seen the Transformers movie, but it it kind of looks like that. And that's that also follows in the style of Kyle's sort of, I guess, love of anime. So eh, it's interesting. It's a nice divergence from the typical hitting someone with a fist. So 
it's very 90s though and speaking of 90s <laughs> on this panel on page 19 panel 2 it looks like Desaad is going to shiv Kyle with a with a dagger that looks like the artist formerly known as Prince symbol yeah I wouldn't like to die that way either I wouldn't like the artist formerly known as Prince symbol entering my body in any way at all but then finally on page 22 Desaad just lets Kyle walk away and uh, we've got more big, toothy Terry Austin grin. Uh, whatever. But at least, you know, next month we're going to have a Green Arrow, Green Lantern crossover. So that'll be fun. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, like I said, not the greatest issue. Not a bad issue by far. But uh, I think it's since it's part of the Genesis tie-in, I really just didn't care about it. Mm. Maybe if I cared about Genesis, I'd be more into this. But well, whatever. Let's go ahead and take a look, however, at some of the ads in his. Uh, they've got some new ones around, and some of them for video games that I have no idea what they're for. I guess we'll find out in the future. And the example of that is on the uh, front inside cover. It's a sort of silver double-bladed battle axe with a snake coil around the base, or the base where the axe is. And the uh, caption, only one man can send the forces of darkness back to hell. I'm certain this relates to some video game, but I have no clue right off the top of my head. And the fact that there's no indicia at the bottom saying what company this is or anything just makes it even more of a mystery. However, reading a few pages in, I think the mystery might have been solved as I see the same or a similar looking axe in front of the face of Kevin Sorbo as... Call the Conqueror. So I think that was an advertisement for the movie Call the Conqueror, which was another Robert E. Howard-created character that was put to a movie that was supposed to sort of take the place of Conan and really didn't do all that good. I mean, I think Kevin Sorbo was a beefy enough character, and I just don't know. I'm I'm looking at some of the credits. It's got a the only real big credit that it's got behind it is Rafaela De Laurentiis, you know, who had a hand in the uh, actual original Conan movies. But, yeah, I think Kevin Sorbo was much better suited to the Sam Raimi, Robert Tappert, Hercules uh, show rather than this Conan or this Conan-esque movie. So, yeah, sad. The next ad is for some of those pewter statues. This one is a, a sort of modern age. In fact, the Underworld Unleashed version of uh, Mr. Freeze. And they've got a classic Batman one and a, uh, I think it looks like a Jim Aparo Batman. Uh, I'm trying to see what era that is. Yeah, that might be Aparo. It's uh, good looking statues, but still, I think they were running like $150. So yeah, pretty pricey even back then. A few more pages in, we get an advertisement for Denny's 3D baseball cards. Yeah, you know my feelings on baseball cards, but yeah, well, whatever. And then uh, in the middle of the book, we get Konami XXL Sports Series. And I guess it's for International Superstar Soccer for the Nintendo 64. And, eh, never a big soccer fan, but it, it looks like a pretty good game, especially for the 64. So eh, if you're a soccer fan, there's games for you now. Hooray! Then a few more pages in, we get an ad that I don't know if I if it annoys me or not. It's that stereotypical picture of uh, 
Albert Einstein with his hair all messed up and he's got his tongue sticking out. And it's a great picture of Einstein and it's a it shows that he well, he didn't really take himself too seriously. He he allowed himself to have this sort of wacky feel. Suddenly it's being used for an advertisement for mellow yellow. Give your deity brain off, let it out, mellow yellow. It's not quite, you know, Bing Crosby dancing with a vacuum cleaner, but yeah, I'm not too keen on it. A few pages in is the subscription ad, and it's a it's turned long ways in the book, so you have to turn the book sideways to read it. But it's a really nice Porter and Dell version of the JLA of the time, the Morrison JLA with Green Lantern, Martian Manhunter, Flash, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Batman, and Electric Blue Superman. And say what you will about Electric Blue Superman, eh, the costume was at least unique. And, you know, I'll have to go back and look at some of that stuff. Hopefully, Michael and Jeffrey will be covering that on for Crisis to Crisis pretty soon. The back inside cover is an ad, again, for Skittles candy, and it's got a magnifying glass looking at a rainbow. And, of course, when you magnify the rainbow, of course, you don't see refracted light. No, you see various colors of Skittles. Because that's what rainbows are made of, kids. Chewy, sugary snacks. And speaking of sugary snacks, we get the back outside cover, which is another one of those not-Jack-Davis ads for Coca-Cola with the extreme kids jumping their bicycles and spilling coca-cola all over the place i swear i really wish i knew who this artist was because he's obviously trying to mimic davis and it's very 90s but uh no idea but there you go coca-cola ads in comic books drink coke and smile kids but that does it for ads, and that does it for this book. I'm going to go get a drink of water, take a little break here, play a couple of promos, and when I get back, we're going to take a look at Green Lantern Corps Quarterly, number four. This is the Old Father Odin, and you should be listening to Radio Free Asgard. No, no, that's just not going to work. Let's try this again. This is the evil Loki, and if you hate Thor as much as I do, you should be... All right, let's just try one more thing. Jane Foster here, and you should be... Ah, risen! All right, let's just keep this simple. Hello, everybody. My name is Tom Harris, and I do a podcast called Radio Free Asgard, which airs every Thursday over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. We cover the adventures of Thor, Hercules, and more from ancient times all the way up into the present day. We read old comics and make fun of them. I do ridiculous voices and generally make an ass of myself. So if that sounds fun to you, you should come join us, the only Thor podcast hosted by a true descendant of Odin, over at RadioFreeAsgard.com, and we'll see you there. He joined the crusade. He helped rule the night. He fought for justice. He wore short pants. 
Okay, so Robin didn't always have the best fashion sense, but there's no way that he should be ignored, ridiculed, or even derided by some Bat fans. He's been an important part of Batman's history for nearly 75 years, and that's why I've decided to give him his due in Taking Flight. Presented by the Batman Universe, Taking Flight is a podcast dedicated to all incarnations of the boy wonder, and every episode I take a look at the adventures of Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, Stephanie Brown, Damian Wayne, and all the others who have worn the red, green, and gold at the side of the Cape Crusader as well as in solo adventures, whether it be as Robin, Nightwing, Red Robin, or the Red Hood. New episodes appear every two weeks at the Batman Universe, which can be found at thebatmanuniverse.net, and you can find additional show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. So join me, Tom Panneries, as I put the spotlight on the greatest sidekick in comicdom. And we're back. And hopefully Tom Panarese will be back as well. You just heard his promo for his podcast, Taking Flight. Uh, It's been on a bit of a hiatus while he's been uh, doing stuff at school. But uh, he's been doing in-country, and hopefully he'll be getting back to Taking Flight pretty soon. Love that show. I'm glad that he decided to take it out of the uh, purvey of just being a sort of short-form podcast about uh, Robin and his early adventures, but I'm glad he's going to do more of it, and hopefully by the time this airs, uh, it'll be back in production. So, looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to the coverage of Green Lantern Corps Quarterly number 4. It was cover dated Spring 1993 and released on January 19, 1993. Had a cover price of 250 US, 325 Canada, and a pound in the UK. The first book in there was entitled The Book of Order. It was written by Gerard Jones, penciled and inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Albert Guzman, colored by Anthony Tolan, associate editor was Eddie Bracanza, and editor was Kevin Dooley. Dodging the blow of an armored predator wannabe, Hal Jordan muses on all that's gone on in his life, essentially playing Expositional News Network, copyright Michael Bailey, 2009, all rights reserved. As Green Lantern and the dreadlocked Desperado duke it out, we see Hal thinking about the Mosaic world, the new recruits to the Green Lantern Corps, the revamping of the Justice League, the wholly unjust removal of Guy Gardner as Green Lantern from Sector 2814, okay, maybe that's just my perception of it, and a whole bunch of other crap that's gone on that Kevin Dooley feels like filling the readers in on. Eventually, we find out that Hal's attacker wasn't an enemy, but Umitu, one of the second waves of recruits to the Corps. As the alien asks if he's got the job, Hal takes him to the Book of Oa to give him a taste of what he might actually be up against. And this is your typical beginning to the Green Lantern Corps quarterly. It's a little story that sort of updates what's been going on in the Green Lantern books, and that's pretty much all it is. Um, I want to start off with Romeo Tangal. He may be a great inker, but he's not a good artist. Some of the character designs and poses in this first story just look Aw. I think working with Mark Bright or Daryl Banks, Tangle is really good, but on his own, eh, not so much. And like I said, plus this story is just a huge info dump just to catch the readers up on what's going on with Green Lantern. Now, there's even more stuff in here that I didn't mention, stuff about Hal finding Aresia, running into Carol Ferris and Star Sapphire, 
Ganthet's Tale, the Eclipso Annuals, Ann Coulter, uh, I mean, Olivia Reynolds, Hector Hammond and Gorilla Grodd, and Carol's Marriage Proposal. Big old info dump where if you were reading the books, it wouldn't be necessary. And I don't know why we need it since I think anyone who would be picking up these books probably would have picked up Green Lantern as well. Probably would have picked up the Guy Gardner issues and might even be reading the Justice League stories. So if you're a fan of Green Lantern at this time, this shouldn't be news to you. So it all seems very expository and kind of unnecessary. And like I said, Tangal, good inker, not so good artist. But it is what it is, and it's a typical opening story for the book. And it leads to better things, however. While I'm at it, I might as well talk about the cover as well. Uh, Kirk Javerin? Javinin? Jarvinin, yes, sorry. He does the cover with Terry Austin inking, and it's a pretty good cover with a green cloaked figure taking on a guy shooting at him with his staff. Not like that, get your mind out of the gutters. And a dinosaur about to eat him, while Emma Frost is shackled to a giant dragon skull beneath him. It's not exactly what goes on with the issue, but it is definitely eye-catching. Uh, in fact, the uh, this is one of the uh, better dinosaur images that I've seen since Mitch Berg drew some uh, dinosaurs that allowed Guy Gardner to punch the hell out of him, which is always nice. But uh, this, of course, will lead us into our second story, which was entitled Precious, and was written by Ron Mars, penciled by Kirk Jarvinian, inked by Terry Austin, lettered by Bob Banaha, and colored by Steve Matson. Traveling through space, or the ether, or the mystic realms, or hell, I don't know, hunky Doctor Strange wannabe Prentice discovers a door hovering in the middle of nowhere. Wondering what could be behind door number one, Prentice magics the door open and steps into a museum of mystic artifacts, and one Green Lantern power battery. Prentice tries to swipe the battery, but is stopped by Ginger McLaundry pants and her machine pistol that makes Prentice think twice about absconding with the emerald trinket. Seeing that his captor is all hot and stuff, Prentice turns on the charm in an attempt to woo her over. But after a quick change into something less revealing, Giselle, I guess that's her name, reveals that the lander belongs to Torquemada, her mentor, who happens to be a sorcerer and a Green Lantern. Prentice tries to magically mesmerize Giselle in order to make off with the lantern, but is foiled by Torquemada, who himself engages the mage in a little eldritch fighty McFightstein. Copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights observed. Prentice pulls out his staff, no, not that one, and shoots yellow beams at Torquemada because, well, you know the drill. Prentice eventually takes Giselle hostage and demands Torquemada's ring and battery. Wanting to spare his people's life, Torque acquiesces, but when Prentice steals a victory kiss from Giselle, he finds that she's got the Midas kiss, as he starts to transform into a gold statue. Crisis averted, we end the issue with Giselle falling into the caring arms of Green Lantern as we see dozens of gold statues in the adjoining room. Now, this story is kind of neat because it's Ron Mars' very first Green Lantern story, and in all honesty, it's pretty good. Mars has been a writer for a bunch of cosmic characters, specifically the Silver Surfer over at uh, Marvel Comics for a while, and I guess he just got the call over to DC to come and do a Green Lantern book, and maybe this was sort of his gateway into getting the job of writing Green Lantern as a whole. 
uh, Jarvinian does some really decent art, and the character of Prentice has some of the facial expressions that are very similar to the ones that we'd see later in the book on Kyle Rayner. I'm wondering if Mars maybe had any input on the way Kyle looked, because Prentice does have that sort of smug, not really smirky look that Kyle has, but some of his facial expressions look very similar to the way Kyle looked in the book. I've got a few notes on here. Uh, starting off on page four, which is the opening panel for this, it's a one-page panel that's really got a weird kind of Ditko-esque Doctor Strange opening. Maybe more Kirby, because it looks like there's a sort of photo-referenced moon or planet in the background as uh, Prentice is floating through space and he finds this weird florally covered door with mystic runes on it and a giant creepy horned skull at the top so yeah you're getting a big doctor strange vibe here it's kind of neat and then moving on to page five panel two we get more doctor strange similarities as prentice decides to use a little magic to open the door and he does that sort of doctor strange you know uh not really the 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 weird thing with his hands where he's got the index finger and the pinky finger pointing out and the thumbs out to the side that sort of weird uh, magicking thing, I guess. Page seven. This is a good example here of the artwork looking a lot like Kyle Rayner. Yes, um, his face is a bit more thinner than Kyle, but the expressions kind of are similar to what you'd see Kyle doing. You know, the sort of shocked look and everything. And rightfully so, he should be shocked because on the sort of three-quarter splash of this, we get uh, the image of Giselle in... <sighs> An absolutely ridiculous bustier and very, very high, uh, high underpants. And she's holding a uh, machine pistol. So essentially, I think this is just, you know, the NRA's way of how women should be. Yeah, if the NRA could have women, I think they'd probably be this way. Maybe Ted Nugent would like women this way. Probably so. Page 10, the character of Giselle is either very secluded or kind of dim. Uh, I'm going to go with the secluded thing simply because she seems to just completely buy into the BS story that Prentice is telling her here. Plus also, she's got that sort of Kathy Ireland look of dull surprise here on the uh, final panel of this page. So yeah, you're not really... You're not really getting a Mensa member here in the character of Giselle. Page 13, we get introduced to Torquemada, who, despite having the name of the Grand Inquisitor of the uh, well, the Spanish Inquisition, is a kind of interesting character concept. He's not only got the technological magic of the Green Lantern ring going for him, but he's also a mystical mage so he's got the whole magic thing that prentice does as well so it's a neat combination it's a green lantern who not only can use the owen power but in in times when you know oh say there's something yellow around he could use his mystical power as well it's it's a neat concept and i think it might have worked you know later on in the green lantern books had this gone on but unfortunately i think this is uh just is kind of one shot Plus, he uh, kind of has a look as of a bald Lobo character, and since this is the 90s, it, it would definitely work for him. Then on page 20, we get Giselle kissing Prentice, and 
him turning to gold. And it's a pretty creepy scene. It's kind of reminiscent of the uh, Matrix movie where after Neo takes the pill, the sort of blackness envelops his face and goes down his mouth. You've got some images of that. But yeah, it's kind of neat. Uh, it was a good story. And it, for Ron Mars's first outing with Green Lantern, it was pretty passable. I really enjoyed it. But let's go ahead and take a look at the next story, which was entitled Grudge Match. It was the Alan Scott story, and it was written again by Roger Stern, this time penciled by Jim Ballant, inked by Andrew Peepoy, lettered by Bob Panaha, colored by Matt Webb, and Green Lantern was created by Bill Finger and Martin O'Dell. Our story opens with Green Lantern Alan Scott getting tossed through a wall of a convenience store by Solomon Grundy, who still wants pants too. Alan tries to fend off the marshland monster, but eventually gets bear-hugged to death. Well, that was over with quick. Satisfied with his task of ending Green Lantern's life, Grundy heads off to cause more mayhem, while the ring tries desperately to keep Alan from going into the light. The ring reminds him, via convenient flashbacks, of Grundy's creation, his bouts with the JSA and Infinity Incorporated, and the swaths of the destruction he has caused. Knowing his job is incomplete, Alan wakes up as his daughter Jade rushes out to check on him. The two head out after Grundy and find him terrorizing some campers. The heroes engage Grundy and place him in a ring construct bubble and draw the oxygen out of it, causing the wood in his body to petrify and ending his... life? Whatever. Now, again, we're getting, if not first, at least early appearances of some of the big names in comicdom in these books. Jim, I like Boob's Ballant, who would go on to do artwork for the Catwoman and Batman books, does some of his earliest work in this story. And his artwork is very clean and not really what you'd expect out of the ridiculous female forms that he would give to other characters that he'd eventually draw. I like the fact that the story deals with Alan and Jade working together, but I've grown to enjoy the elder statesman that Alan was portrayed in previous issues. This is a nice issue, and there's some fun stuff in here. Don't really have any specific notes. Uh, balance art is clean. Uh, it hasn't gotten to that point of the Catwoman styling where it's all boobs and butts yet, but it's not that different, or it's not vastly different from Abel's art that we've got in the past couple of episodes, so it's a good story. This is just more action-oriented, and I think from now on, the stories for Alan Scott will probably get a more, ac more action-oriented feel rather than the sort of retelling of tales and dealing with the... Uh, the older Alan Scott and his wife. Which, yeah, uh, that's disappointing me, because I was kind of liking that. Our next story was the Nort story, and it was called Revenge of the Nerd. G apostrophe N-E-R-D. It was written by Michael Yuri, penciled by Joe James, inked by Barbara, Barbara Kahlberg, or Barb Kahlberg, lettered by Albert de Guzman, and colored by Anthony Tolan. Telling the tale of how he single-handedly saved Superman, Wonder Woman, The Flash, and Hal Jordan from the grasp of Eclipso, Green Lantern Nort astounds the members of his graduating class of Cujo Memorial Obedience School, who have gotten together to celebrate their 70th year reunion, 10th in People Years. Nort brings Sax Girl along to meet his fellow classmates, which include Bully Norman and stereotypical dweeb Philo. It seems all this time, Philo hasn't grown out of his awkward nerdiness and is still the object of laughter and derision of his other classmates. 
But after Nord and Philo are tricked into getting locked in the school freezer, Philo decides to drink a concoction that mutates the fleas on his body and turns him into a hulking free flea farm. Try saying that ten times fast. Oh, and since the drink had lemon juice in it, he's also yellow because Green Lantern. Why not? Philo sends his fleas against the revelers, but Sack's girl counters with some handy flea powder she conveniently had brought along. Philo turns his rage to Norman, the one who hounded, get it, it's a pun, him for so many years, only to find out that his macho bravado was only a cover, and he also was a nerd who was trying to cover it up. Prices averted, Nord and Sack's girl dance the night away. Well, Nord dances and Sack's girl tries to get from getting kicked in the shits. The end. Uh, you know, this was not the best of the Nort stories and the Green Lantern Corps quarterly book so far, but it was decent. Uh, we get to head back to Nort's home world, uh, Newton, I think it is, which was populated by bipedal dogs, and we got a lot of silly visual gags in this. Now, Michael Yuri, the writer for this story, has a background in doing goofy tales about heroic anthropomorphic animals. In fact, uh, he was one of the main writers in, I think, Marvel Tales that... Uh, covered Spider-Ham, and uh, then after this he went on to write the Looney Tunes books for uh, DC Comics as well. So he's got kind of a good feel for writing comedic books with uh, with animals in them. So it was fun, nothing amazing in it. The artwork is okay. I still would have preferred Joe Staten to be on the book, but James is, he's passable. I'm not saying it's bad, but it, it, I, like I said, Joe Staten draws the best Nord for me. But leads, this leads us to the last story in the book, which was entitled Best Choice, and it was written by Joe Eadkin and Jeff Hedzel, penciled by Mac Myers, inked by Al Gordon and Barb Kahlberg, colored by Anthony Tolan, and lettered by Dan Marcosis. In a small Nebraska town, dowdy schoolteacher Donna prepares to leave for home and her children, avoiding the advances of Principal Tanner, who would like to be her sugar daddy. Donna appreciates the offer, but she'd rather take her fatherless children out skating than hook up with Iggy Principal Rebound. Cut to the lake where the family are having a good time skating on the ice, when what should happen to it but... wait for it. Yes, the ice cracks open, causing the youngest of the three children to fall into the frozen pond. Donna rushes to the opening, and tying a rope from the sled her kids were playing on around her waist, she dives into the sub-zero water, while from behind a tree, someone looks on. Donna steals herself from the cold in a valiant attempt to find her lost daughter, but, because she's a woman, gets distracted by a shiny ring under the water. That's, that's sarcasm, folks. I'm not being misogynistic. It's humor. Go with it. Luckily, the ring is a Green Lantern ring, which allows mother and daughter to burst out of the frozen water before they both succumb to hypothermia. Wondering what just happened, the family is approached by the lurking voyeur, who just so happens to be a guardian of the universe. The guardian offers Donna membership in the Corps, but she politely declines, because if she were to die, there would be no one to love her family. The guardian says, whatevs, and poofs away mind-wiping her and her kids as he bitches about her stupid choice to love her family. Ugh. You know, every Green Lantern book has to have a story that's kind of subpar, and this is it. 
this is definitely an inventory story. The authors and artists have had one story published. Total. Now, this is according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, and I'm going to say that he's probably researched this pretty well. This is the one story that they've had published. Now, granted, the story and art weren't all that bad, but it definitely feels like a lifetime movie of the week, with the widowed mother of three trying to make ends meet, a skeevy man trying to get into her pants, a stupid coincidence that puts her children in danger, and a ham-fisted inning of being a mom who loves their children is more important than defending the galaxy from evil. You know, I don't necessarily disagree with the sentiment. I think being a loving mother is a very important thing, but it just smacks of being a pitiful movie starring Marlo Thomas, who was in an abusive relationship and whatnot. Uh, we've had worse, but yeah, uh, again, I don't like preachy stories in my comics, and this one was overly preachy and very, like I said, lifetime movie of the week. So, in the end, however, the book concludes with Hal and Umitu meeting up the other lanterns and their new recruits, some of whom have, a pre have appeared in previous episodes of the Book of Oa and are going to get killed off really soon. Rather than warn them and risk retcons, Hal says, it. they're not real Green Lanterns like me, so they'll probably be killed off by some power-hungry madman eventually. Oh. Wait. The end. And yeah, that does it for this episode or this issue of Green Lantern Core Quarterly. Uh, not a bad one this time out. I'm kind of disappointed that the Alan Scott storyline strayed away from the Alan and his wife thing. Uh, it looks like they're bringing in to a more action-filled thing, and I think that was actually where the story went. The Nort story was fun, if goofy, and it had a very Looney Tunes feel. The introduction of Ron Mars into the Green Lantern storyline was great, and also, you know, seeing some of the first work of Jim Ballant was kind of fun. Uh, aside from the final issue, which, like I said, had a very Lifetime Movie of the Week feel, uh, it was overall a good issue. But we've got good issues to come uh, starting next week, where we're going to be taking a look at three issues of comics, two Green Arrow and one Green Lantern. In the three-part story arc, Hate Crimes, which deals with a villain from Green Arrow's past who might or might not be able to cause people to, well, be completely racist. It's an interesting story, and I hope you guys all like it. We'll uh, debate whether or not it's really preachy or not, and I'll be debating that with a certain special guest. A person who hasn't been on the show, but uh, will soon be debuting on the Two True Freaks Network. Uh, you probably heard him from the Quarterbin podcast and also from his show with his daughter, the uh, Shortbox Showcase. So next time out, be looking for Professor Alan Middleton to be here to talk some Green Arrow, Green Lantern crossover goodness. But until then, I hope you guys have a good weekend, have a good week, and we will catch you back here next Friday on another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, 
while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the new rule 2. And you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Awards group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show was Invisible Touch by Genesis, off the album of the same name, Invisible Touch. If you'd like to buy this song, or if you'd like to buy the album, there are a myriad number of places where you can go out and buy it, but the best place, and probably the most inexpensive place, would be to go to Amazon.com. And the best way to get to Amazon.com is through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. If you go to the homepage at 2TrueFreaks.com and click on the banner up at the left-hand corner, you'll be transported to Amazon.com where you can buy either the Genesis album, Invisible Touch, the MP3 song, or whatever else you like. There's also other types of music on there. There's electronics, games, bunches of fun stuff. Amazon.com is the greatest place to go shopping, especially when Christmas is coming up pretty soon. So, anytime that you plan on doing shopping at Amazon.com, make sure you go through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. A small amount of any money that you use to purchase things on Amazon.com comes back to 2TrueFreaks, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So with the holidays coming up and shopping, well, not really fun at the mall, why don't you stay home and shop at Amazon and use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com.